there's not a great amount of antagonism towards too many people in the book. Even people that I probably get a right to be annoyed at, I don't see it that way. You know, because you, I will enjoy living my life the way I want to live my life and understand that not everyone will see it that way. Um, so if that means a player I don't get on with, I'll still be able to work a manager who doesn't rate me. I'll still do my best for him until I have to go and do something else and then I shrug my shoulders and move on. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. As we head into the Christmas and the holiday period, I'm taking a little bit of a break from recording new interviews, as I mentioned last week. And we're going to have four weeks of trips to the archive for Connected Leadership Gold, starting with this classic from the archive that comes from March of 2022. I hope you enjoy it. My guest this week is someone who I have been very excited to have the chance to interview. He's someone who, when I was a kid in my teens, uh, would have been one of my idols. You know, when, when we're growing up in the UK, if you're a football fan, you have the players on your team that you really love and you have the players in the game as a whole that you, you, you really love. And, and Pat Nevin, for me, playing for Chelsea uh, at the time particularly, uh, was a superstar of football. He uh, he scored goals, he set up goals, he was a flair player. He, he was someone different as well. He stood out from the crowd, also had cracking taste in music. Over the course of his career, Pat Nevin made almost 850 first-team appearances. Uh, he was a professional footballer with Clyde, Chelsea, Everton, Tranmere, Kilmarnock and Motherwell, as well as his national team, Scotland. He was also a chief executive player a very rare position while he was at Motherwell FC, and he was chairman of the Professional Footballers Association for five years. And, and you'll hear the union man come uh, in him come out very strongly um, throughout our conversation. Since his retirement, uh, Pat's got a very strong media career. He's been a columnist with many British national newspapers, The Times, The Sunday Times, The Observer, The Independent, The Mail on Sunday, and also in Scotland um, with The Scotland on Sunday and The Herald, among others. Uh, and he's a radio football pundit um, for BBC Five Live and has been for, for 28 years. I listen to him regularly on the Saturday morning panel show Fighting Talk. Uh, and he's also been on a raft of other TV and radio uh, shows as well. The uh, prompt for, for the interview is I recently read Pat's book, The Accidental Footballer. As I mentioned, I think towards the, the end of the conversation, I'm not the biggest fan of footballers' memoirs. I find many of them quite bland, derivative, quite cliched. Uh, Pat's is anything but those. It's a, it's a Sunday Times bestseller. Uh, it's an Excellent, excellent read. Uh, I highly recommend. Um, and uh, it prompted me to reach out through a mutual contact who's mentioned in the book, someone I worked with over 20 years ago, uh, and asked Pat if he would share some of his uh, experience uh, on the podcast and we could see how that would be a fit for leaders in any walk of life. Uh, by the way, uh, Pat, on top of everything else, I mentioned his great musical taste. He's also a, a part-time DJ as well. Uh, as if everything else wasn't enough. So I started out by asking Pat um, about the title and theme of his book. 
the book is called The Accidental Footballer. Uh, Pat describes how he was good at football at school, um, but every step on the pro ladder from when he became a part-timer with Clyde through joining Chelsea and on, it seems to be something that happened to him rather than uh, something that he actively pursued. Um, one of the things I really loved when I read it in the book is that he was doing a degree when Chelsea came in for him and he spoke to the university and put his degree on hold for the duration of his two-year contract with Chelsea with every intention of going back to uni after the two years. He, he's, even at that stage, he didn't envisage becoming a professional footballer long-term. Uh, and in the book, he shares a mantra, being a footballer is what I do, not who I am. So I asked Pat how his ability to not be attached to a career as a footballer help him within that career and at what point did it change um that's a very good question um it really helped me because i always had a safety net so if i failed at football um failed means you didn't get another contract it's okay i've got something else to do i will not you know be depressed about it um i love playing football and this is the important bit and they all dichotomy of it uh yes it was an accident of football yes i tried really hard not to be a footballer, and failed. But I loved the actual physical playing of the game. Um, I like training, I like the fitness, all that sort of stuff. I love the creativity. But the idea of having it as my job in my life wasn't absolutely in that. The reason being, I thought it would probably take the love of it away. I didn't like the odds, because very few get through and make a, an absolute career out of it. But as you suggest, it kind of adapts and changes as you go along. You know, and the biggest help it gave me to answer your question directly, was when I went to play any game, particularly when I joined Chelsea, but before that, even with Clyde, when I was part-time, I could actually go out and do my best and try my best, but do it with the joy of playing, not through fear. And a lot of people would try to you know, play through fear and worry and panic and nerves, etc. And I don't think that's good for creativity. I think you're much more likely to create well if you're relaxed, comfortable, uh, and and I, I don't think that is football. I mean, if, if you're a writer, if you're many things in this world, if you're doing it through a passion and love of it, you'll be better at it. But see, when I tried to explain things like I do football, people, when I was playing, <laughs> I was wasting my time because they are saying, no, get out, fight, battle, all that sort of stuff. And I, I didn't see it that way. Now, my attitude that I had throughout those years it sounds, I wouldn't say normal, but it's, you get it, you accept it, you understand it. You know, there's a lot of people under, think that way. Certainly in America now, a lot of people feel that creativity is important and through, through playing through lack of fear or, and the mean sports, that you're actually improved by it. So that old British up in that attitude, you know, it's got its place, but, you know, it's not the only way. Yeah, I mean, the reason I, I asked that, you say it's not just in football, is the, the focus of the podcast is the power of professional relationships specifically to, to support leaders. And one of the things that I learned a couple of years ago from, from someone who, who taught me was a wonderful acronym called NATO, not attached to the outcome, which I've shared on the podcast before. And that's why what you say, say in the book, and you talk about it quite a lot, resonated with me you talk about your first contract renewal talks with ken bates and you didn't care 
And he suddenly realised that, and, you know, for those listening who, who don't know their football history, Ken Bates was the chairman of Chelsea that time and a very notorious, hard, classic football, football oh. pub owner. You know, you talk about from a creativity perspective, that relaxed attitude makes a difference. But I guess also from in everything you do, is it something you've carried on in your, your media career and, and your business career post-football? Yeah, um, it became harder and harder. Um, now, I'll give you a little secret. Two days ago, I sent an email which had the second book <laughs> sent to my publisher. And by that point... Um, you know, I've, I've a bit more of my career to go. Then I've become PFA chairman and also become chief executive of a football team in Scotland as well as a player. Now it becomes more difficult to, you know, live that purity of spirit. Um, but I try to, I fought hard to keep it. I fought hard to remember the reasons why I was in those businesses. But it is much, much harder when you've got so many other people have so many other ideas and life doesn't, it tends not to be binary. It tends not to be black and white. It ten, tends to have, you know, subtleties in it, you know, gray areas in it. But as, as long as you continue to try and do things for what I would say is the right reasons, you know, for the, the purity of it, for the love of it, for the betterment of everyone. And that then becomes a slight, not political, but kind of social attitude you've got. Um, I certainly kept that going. Um, well, I was doing that. I had a further career beyond that, which was you know journalism and writing and TV and radio. And that's easy. <laughs> you can that's fine to do. It's a much easier life. There aren't stresses. People will try and make you do things that you don't feel at one with. Um, I just ignore them. I'm, I'll go and do something else. I'm very happy, and indeed have made it. Just walked away from jobs when I don't think it is you know, they've got the same attitude as me. And that's fine. There are different attitudes. Um, to jump miles forward, I think we're, in, we're, we're entering a dangerous area, era in what you're talking about just now, a really unbelievably dangerous era. Um, I don't know if you agree with that, Andy, but um, you know, large conglomerates, you know, like Facebook, like Twitter, like whatever, they don't see human beings anymore. They don't work with individuals anymore. You may remember right at the start of my book, and the reason why I wrote it. I wrote it because somebody annoyed me because they only cared about click, clicks and you know, and they wanted me to be clickbait for them. When you have organisations that have no interest any longer in the individuals that a work for them and b that they are representing. That's fine. You can get absolutely enormous with that. But you then completely and utterly lost your soul. And if that's the way we are going with the biggest conglomerates now, and a lot of young people seem to love them, I, I think we're, in, we're going in very horrible, dangerous areas. And that might make me sound old-fashioned. But I've actually seen it with more eyes. You touch on, you're starting on something very interesting there, and, and I do tend to agree with you. I've got a new presentation that at the date we're recording this next week, I debut it, and it's about vulnerable leadership. And my argument is that if you're a Gen Xer or a baby boomer, you were brought up in an era of command and control leadership, um, Gordon Gecko in Wall Street, uh, that type of image. Uh, and that's what we've really grown up with. I mean, 
uh, allied to this, but maybe we'll park it for the moment. It's different styles of football management as well, because those were the days of Brian Clough, for example, when you just did what he told you if you paid for Brian Clough. Um, and, and my argument is that we need to be moving and we're starting to move towards a more empathic style of leadership. And the Financial Times had an editorial about that at Christmas. What you're saying is that actually we're not and that there's this, oh, this quite, command of control is becoming stronger. Quite the opposite in the largest organisations. Um, there is no place for the individual. Um, but then you have to remember, I'm coming from the position of a, a union man as well. And you look at the way that Uber, you know, developed their business model. Well, good luck to you if you've got a problem. Because they wouldn't, unless they were stressed by an older market, they wouldn't have actually given any rights to the workers. And you look at, you know, the, the effect that some of the largest um, online companies have. You you can have children having suicides, etc. Do they care? Are they making an effort? Are they putting the thousands of people onto covering this and make sure it's safe? No, they're not. And the reason why they're not is because it's not good for the bottom line. So the empathy, I think there is a lot of people talking about it, but and 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 you will tick a lot of boxes. But I work for a number of companies, and there's a lot of box ticking going on here. And you know, if if you then get rid of all the workers and you outsource and things like that. You think, oh, that makes good business sense. Yeah. But then you are no longer liable. So you, you're talking to someone here who's obviously worked at the union rep, you know, chief executive, who looks back and thinks, I'm an, I'm very interested in individuals. Less so in, you know, the bottom line, you will make enough money if you had two business. It's fine. Whether you make 10 billion or 100 billion, so what? You still your shoulders. But I know modern business, modern large businesses. And because it came out of California and thinking, um, it, it was interesting because they know the right words. They know the right phraseology. I suspect they could be worse than the previous group. I suspect they could be more dangerous. So anyway, it's an interesting edit to go. Um, and I, I find it really intriguing to watch it as, it, as, as that whole business thing develops. Um, where these, you know, if we, we'll get the algorithms right. Have you ever talked to a human being? No. And the algorithms might absolutely work. Classic, here's a classic example. I work in the media, right? And uh, all the people I work in the media, and I work, work with big media organizations, and they make a lot of business. They're not, uh, they're not owing up to it, but they do. They make a lot of decisions on what is said on Twitter, right? And they feel that that is reflecting what the people are saying. I think it's the most incredibly incorrect thing I've ever heard, and I've argued this since the beginning of Twitter. What percentage of the people are on Twitter? How reflective are they, the ones that are on of most people? Then you get into the smaller subsection of the people who are incredibly active. And then a subset of that are the angry ones who you notice. See, when you start getting down to that, those subsets, you're talking 0.01%. And the media thinks that's how everyone thinks. And they are wrong. So, you know, a lot of things were, you know, these is put down it to see you're a boomer or whatever. Um, in actual fact, I studied business. I studied that. My degree was economics, accounts, new marketing law, you name it. You know, I, I'm coming from a position of I'm interested in the, the, the horrid sides of these businesses that I worked in many years ago. But I will not be ignoring the fact that there are other possibly even bigger and more dangerous difficulties coming forward. Then, to be honest, we're talking about just now, but certainly that's 
very much part of the second book that I've, I've just written. That I see some of these dangers coming and some of these worries coming, and and, and then get personally hit by some of them. I'm torn. I'm completely torn now because uh, I think this is a, a very important topic. I think it's a very interesting discussion and debate. Um, and yet, I want to talk to you about a lot of the issues that are in your yeah. in, in current book. <laughs> so um, I, I do want to sort of sort of link the two in a question, but I would like to park it. And I, I think that maybe when your second book comes uh, back, we can also have part two of this discussion and, and go into those dangers a bit more. The, the other thing that came out of your first answer, so I, I needed to dig into what you were saying about the dangers coming and, and, and the different era. Going back to this point about NATO not being attached to the outcome, you say that a footballer was a lot easier than when you were a chief exec, which, which makes mm-hmm. sense. As a writer, as a broadcaster, it's easier than, than in, in some of those other roles. How much of that is down to when, you, when you're a footballer, when you are a writer or a broadcaster, it's Pat Nevin limited, effectively. You, you are working for yourself. Yes, you're in a team, and we'll explore that in a, in a moment, but it's your career, it's your business effectively and no one else other than your family obviously is dependent upon that um and then when you're a chief executive a chairman uh, then there are other people relying on you uh, and how do you cr- try and find that balance try and bring that that di- disattached out uh, on to the outcome mindset into those roles where other people are dependent on you well the, the number one thing is when you go to those other roles you don't take them unless the people you're working with, to some degree, share them. And that's what I did. So if you go and work for a union, obviously there's going to be a sharing of that because a union is there to help other people. So it's fine. You're going to be kind of cool with that. There might be fights and battles on the way and it it gets complicated when you're fighting with the Premier League over a television deal and it can get quite ugly. But as long as the guys that you're with other people are trying to make the best for your workers. So you can, you can that, that's fine. When I went to become chief executive of a football club, I had no interest in it, none at all. Even less interest in that than I had been a professional footballer. <laughs> but the guy who, was, who bought the club didn't know much about football. But I'd watched the way he'd run his businesses before that. And because he'd had an incredibly personal relationship with all his workforce, um, he treated them, he gave percentages of, you know, at the end of every year, a percentage of, you know, the company's you know, profits were given to them out with their contracts. Just, no, no, you've worked really hard, you have a percentage of this. I mean, how many people are really doing that without shares on the top of it, right? So I like the cut of his job because of that. Now, if you can work with that, now, of course, that, that it didn't last because <laughs> business gets ugly and football business gets ugly as well. So the dichotomy of going into a business and keeping this shooty, but I think it worked. I honestly think, if you look over the years, I think you know Peter Jones, John Lewis is a good, a good example of it. You know how you, how it actually works as an incredibly successful business, but you're not squeezing every penny of it. You're not squeezing every area of everyone, including not just your workers on the floor, but you know your people in the staff at the top as well. You have to understand there's a life to live where we're doing this. So I have certainly didn't, I didn't find it initially difficult when that little period happened where you, you are chief executive and you have to make those ugly decisions. 
Um, but then it just got harder and harder and harder until a point where it was impossible. And then it was saying, either to be that person and change into that person in that business, or else do something else. No surprises, I chose to do something else. <laughs> but many businessmen decide not to. They decide to go, okay, then I will go down the, that, that other route. And I could hear many businessmen listening to me just now going, oh, you're so naive, and that's just the way it is. Yeah, and I get that. But I've seen too many trails of pain and worse than pain. They have been left behind these people. They never look back. They don't see the torture and the pain that they inflict. They see profit. They see wealth. And I, I am afraid I always see what's in the wake. And because I always see what's in the wake, I always look at what's in the wake. Um, I couldn't do it. But, you know, two different outlooks in life. I don't know if there's a right and wrong, but I know what mine is. It sounds like your values are very core to all your decision-making. So the, the outcome you're attached to is more the outcome being aligned to your values than the outcome. Uh, yeah, but they can still win it. You can still be a winner. You can still oh, be a I'm, winner. You'll be successful. You can still, and there are organizations and structures and companies and people out there who can do it that way. It's a wee bit harder. And actually, your profit may be smaller. But then... The profit in your society is vastly bigger. <laughs> and I think that's an important thing. I heard uh, an extract from a podcast on, on the Chris Evans Breakfast Show recently um, from a guy who was approached by Jeff Bezos to be Amazon's chief economist in the early days. And he was offered a, a good salary and options uh, when the share was $7 a share the price was $7 a share. And his condition to Jeff Bezos was, I'll do the work, but if through the work I find anything that will be of benefit to wider society, I reserve the right to publish it in the, as a scientific paper in public domain. And Jeff Bezos said, I can't do that. I can't work like that. And so the guy didn't take it. And he recommended a friend who, who is still to this day chief economist at Amazon. And every year the guy sends, the, the guy who introduced him a Christmas card with his net worth <laughs> because he totaled his option. But the guy stuck by his values and he just couldn't do it. And, and I have so much respect for that. And I think it's a good example of what you're talking about. Yeah, and it, it's a shame. At the end of it, so Bezos and Amazon have got unbelievable billions of pounds. But what if some of the, those pieces of information, the important ones, have been shared? You know, the rest of the planet may have been a lot better off. We don't know, but they may have been better off. And that's, and certainly that's, I mean, you, you quite often find billionaires. You mean, if someone could send me there, you know, if I didn't take a job because of any reasons, you know, the number of jobs I didn't take, they could send me their 10 million pounds they earned this year in, in an email. I mean, absolutely no effect. None at all. I don't, I don't care. And I would be a lot happier. I'm lucky I can say that because I've got enough to get by. I just happen to be someone who's not particularly interested in owning things. I don't get a kick out of that sort of thing. I like experiences. Um, so it's easy for me to say that to some degree. But I think, I, I don't know, I've found myself a little bit happier than a lot of people I see who are chasing those sort of things. Um, you'll find a lot of the, you know, recently, the last few years, a lot of the billionaires have come together with that. The Billionaires Club have given 70% of their net worth back you know, to charities or good causes or whatever. It's amazing it took them that long to do it. 
You know, they waited until they were billionaires. It could have been nice if you'd kind of done some of the stuff and thought of everybody else in the way up as well. Uh, but hey, you got there in the end. So you're, you're thinking of how some of us think you eventually matched this bit. <laughs> it was an eventually kind of thing. But as I found it, I, I sound quite earnest sometimes when I'm chatting about this sort of thing. I'm, I'm, I'm really not at all. I don't have any dis, disgust at despise, despise anyone who chooses other routes in business and in life. You just have your own, and you, you'll have understood that through the book. There's not a great amount of antagonism towards too many people in the book, even people that I probably get a right to be annoyed at. I don't see it that way, you know, because I will enjoy living my life the way I want to live my life and understand that not everyone will see it that way. Um, so if that means a player I don't get on with, I'll still be able to work with him. A manager who doesn't rate me, I'll still do my best for him until I have to go and do something else and then I shrug my shoulders and move on. Let's build on that a bit because one of the things that I think any football fan of of my age or older will remember you from the 80s, uh, not just, I mean, on the pitch, you're an incredibly skillful uh, player and, uh, and set up and scored a lot of goals, um, but also you stood out. You stood out from other players in the era. You you prefer going to see Indian and, and post-punk gigs. And by the way, we share exactly the same taste in music as well. Um, but you, you preferred that to the to the nightclubs and the page three girls. You're going to be more likely to be on the you know interviewed in NME than you were in the mirror uh, and so forth. Um, and and similarly, I mean, a player that you mentored effectively when he came through, Graham Lasso. Um, was spotlighted for being different as well at Chelsea, you know, reading The Guardian in the changing room and so on, and even had his sexuality called into question because he spoke well. You know, he came from a, a, a middle-class background. Uh, how did, particularly in that era, how did those different interests impact your ability to build the strong bonds that you need within a team, the trust that you need within a team, uh, but, but also the connection with the supporters of clubs like Chelsea and Everton? I never looked for them. Those connections, never looked for them. My attitude was when I came to work, I would work really hard. I'd be incredibly dedicated. And that should be enough for you. Um, if I got on well with you, I got on well with you. I did get on well with a number of players. I'll be brutally honest, I didn't hang about with many after work. you know. But then I would argue how many of us do hang about with their workmates all the time. You know, you don't. You, know, you see them at work all the time. Because of this attitude in football, that you're kind of your brothers in arms and you're, you know, in the trenches together. Yeah, you are, but you're, you're, you're training every day together. You're playing on Saturday. You, you don't actually need to hang about and do everything together as well. It's enough of a bubble for those people. And I'd come from a different background. You know, I'd come from education. I'd come from, you know, some, some political positions that I wanted to take that they didn't necessarily share or want to, you know, stand on a you know, a soapbox about. So why should I change the way I was to be like them? And maybe if there's any message in my book, and I don't, I hope it's not top something like, it's okay to be different. And it's okay to be different, but want to be a winner. It's okay to be different, but not dislike. Um, and Graham was who you mentioned there. I met Graham uh, just three days ago um, in, in London. Um, which we, we chat all the time. And yeah, see, I did kind of take him under my wing because he come, I come from the East End of Glasgow. 
And if you come from the East End of Glasgow and you've got 10, 15, 20 guys in the dressing room trying to wind you up because you're different, do you know what? You don't give a stuff. <laughs> I'm standing here thinking, you honestly think I care? <laughs> do what you like. I'm going to wind you up back. You know, whereas Graham, very different, nice, middle-class, Jersey boy, much, much harder for him. So, Certainly myself and my girlfriend or whatever, we'd, we'd take him to the South Bank or whatever. I told him about books and music and stuff. And the underlining, look, but, but find your own path. Always find your own path. And I suppose if anyone, if anyone does want to look for messages in the book, whatever your outsider status is, try and be yourself. Really, if you can be yourself within it. Because when you start trying to ape other people, People aren't conned by it. They, they're kind of, they know that you're just trying to fit in. And you, it comes across as a bit pathetic sometimes. Yeah, sometimes you have to adapt one or two things. My accent is slightly adapted when I'm talking, just so you can understand the bleeding word that I can say. But yes, there is adaptability you need to do in certain situations. But being yourself, being true to yourself, sounds like a, a, a kind of simple thing to say. But it's, it's, for some people, it's harder to do. And if there's any message in the book is read through just every story here and you'll see I sometimes had to just say, no, I'm not doing what you're doing. None of you are stand, standing up against racism. I don't care. <laughs> I'm going it. <laughs> you know, the club pretty pressure not to, to make a stance and make a fuss. I'm ignoring it. That's my bosses. But I don't care. Um, they're into music, certain things. Uh, there, there's a lovely story I hope in the book. Um, and it's just a chapter that's almost all about homophobia. Now, I just happen to be straight, but I haven't got a homophobic bone in my body. But I, you come in a football team, and it was unusual in those days that and I'd go to the ballet, and the next day I'd be in the school. And school, ah, that's what it felt like. I'd be into the, the, the club, and I'd walk in, and I'm thinking, my friend was a principal ballerina, and I was standing in the winds at the Royal Ballet at Co- Covent Garden, and I have had this magical experience. And you want to go into work next day after you've had an experience like that and say to people, wow, what, what a time I had. It was amazing. This is what I did. And I thought, I might not go down so well in a professional football club. And I didn't tell them immediately. And then after a while, I thought, actually, yeah, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to have the fun of that and own it. And I did. And yeah, there was one or two slightly Neanderthal about it. But most of the rest, I just found it really interesting. So you know, that was a massive, massive thing about, you know, when I worked in that industry, and to the degree still do, I will not. And it's, it's getting harder now, because I say it's getting harder now. Because so many kids, and not just kids, but anyone, if you're on social media, there is there's such a stress to come from. There's such a stress not to say things that people disagree in case you get cancelled, etc. And there becomes a an accepted norm and way to talk and ideas to have. I don't share some of them. I'm not going to hide it. There was a, 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 give you a simple one the other day. Everton have sacked them much. You know, Rafa Benitez, right? And the Everton fans can't stand them because he used to be a Liverpool manager and it, it didn't go well for him. I think he's great. I think he's done a great job. And I still think it. And they go, but what about the stats? Yeah, it wasn't his team and uh, he didn't get any backing. And this was his first chance during this window here to make a change. And by the players in, he won't, 
it's nonsense to turn around a business that size, which was struggling anyway in 14 games. So I said, no, I'm not having it. So this does not go down well because the accepted norm within Everton fans is we all hate Rafa. I don't care. I'm sad, but I still like Everton. I still like Everton fans. But I won't adapt my thinking because you can only take your own thinking from your own professional knowledge. And don't, but I've spent so much time in the media that I know there's a lot of people there that think, right, everyone thinks that I better go on board with this. I'm afraid that I am totally and utterly incapable of doing Create a greater impact as a mentor. Discover how to find the right person to mentor you and make sure that mentoring thrives in your organization with the Financial Times Guide to Mentoring. Andy Lapata and Dr. Ruth Gotian's new book comes out in May and is available to pre-order now. There's, there's a couple of things I want to pick up on there. I want to come back to the racism you touched on in a while. Um, you, t- you touched on homophobia as well. And obviously, um, homophobia in football has been a, a, a big issue for many years. And, and still, to this day, the only player to come out while still playing um, in, in professional leagues in football is uh, Justin Fashion, who, um, you know, and it, it didn't go well for him, I mean, to put it mildly, and a very, very sad story. Um, you talk about owning it, and I, I very much agree that you need to be authentic and you need to own where you are. I think from a distance that football has changed and there's more of a culture where people could share that. Um, but you could share you, 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 you went to the ballet. Um, but do you think if you had been gay, you would have been comfortable to open up in that environment at the time? And do you think it has changed? Because obviously you're closer to it than I am. Um, at the time, I was very hopeful that they, any gay players around would come out. Um, I'm very, very happy to stand shoulder to shoulder and say, no, no, look, it's, just, it's how you play football. It doesn't change how you are. Equality should be equality no, no matter who you are. Um, but at the time, it would have been incredibly hard, certainly from the terrorists. Um, you, and the stands would have been absolutely battered. I don't think it's the case now. I think it'll be fine. I absolutely think it'll be fine. And I'll tell you why. Um, this gener- these generations have just lived with, they've moved on in many, many ways. Um, there are always going to be homophobic people out there. There are some religions that are quite homophobic. Um, but if, you, if you're a gay player and you came out now and you walked in and dressed all you, all you would get is hugs. All you would get is everyone behind you. If you're good enough, the game will be so extraordinarily positive towards you. It's not going to be a problem. I give the example. Have a look at the women's game. No problem there, is it? <laughs> and it isn't a problem. So where is the problem going to be? People say football is homophobic. I'm not convinced that the actual footballers would be. You've got the odd one, but they, they look. I'll give you an example. There are racist footballers playing in England just now. There are racists. Don't see them, do you? Don't hear them, do you? No, you won't, because culture has moved on and it's unacceptable to be that way. The same will be the same. The same will be the same with a gay player. They'll be fine. Within the media, they will also be fine. There will be no overt homophobia towards any player who comes out. That'll be fine. There might be subtler stuff, that, but I think it'll be overcome. You do not see people writing or talking on the television or radio and being racist, and you won't get it anymore. Which leaves two areas. 
of free areas. Will there be a problem from the stand? Yes, there will. Will it be shouted down the way racism is and be a less of a problem than it used to be? Yeah, but it still will be. But that's part of the way culture moves on. And it will be hard for the first person that comes out. But I think the vast majority of fans in the end will be closed. And I'm pretty confident in The other area, online, yeah, they're going to get back. We're going to get hammered. But then everyone does. <laughs> Let's be fair. I get hammered. GK Rowling gets hammered. You name it, get hammered, right? You're going to get hammered online. That's the way it is. And it will be some vile stuff. But within it, there'll also be an incredible amount of positivity. Um, so that's not the game. That's not the game being homophobic. That's society being homophobic. And let's get this right. Now leaves one last group. The very final group that you need to get beyond. And I, I'm hopeful that group's going to be fine. And that group are managers and owners. Now, managers and owners will be be affected and not buy a player, a player, player because he's gay. I am pretty much 100% sure the Brown player is going to be fine because <laughs> they don't care. They want somebody who's going to win them games of football. Um, but the, the subtlety would come when a player's kind of similar to another player, but that one's gay and that one's straight. Initially, it won't be a bad problem because the first gay player, big name, big gay player comes down in the UK. Um, I honestly get a feeling they'll get, they'll get the biggest amount of advertising they've ever seen in your life. <laughs> they can, they'll hammer it if they want it. They may not want it. And you shouldn't be pushed to be out. So I've thought, as you can tell, I've thought about this long and hard. And there's a whole, as I say, a chapter in the book about it, which when I, I wrote this book two and a half years ago, finished it a bit, and it's been out for six months. And I only had one worry. One worry. The entire time I waited for the publishing and all that to happen was that a player would come out before the book came out. Because <laughs> I was saying very strongly, it's going to be fine. And the reason why I said it is it's really one big reason. I want, if there's gay and there are gay players out there, right, them to know that people are saying, we've, we've got you. We're going to stand beside you. It's, 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 I'm not saying it's going to be fine. But don't worry, you're going to have some unbelievable support from a lot. And I wanted them to know that. That was why I wrote this in the book. And that's why I give so much thought to it. So standing behind people who are in difficult situations is normal for me. You know, be it the anti-racism cast, be it whatever campaigns, it doesn't matter. I absolutely believe in equality of opportunity, period. I think that... Uh, I think you're right in everything you say. Um, the... Um, the campaigning side, I think, has got stronger and stronger. Kick it out mm -hmm. for years really made a huge difference in terms of uh, racist abuse and, and eradicating that, or not eradicating it, but diminishing it to a huge degree and creating the the, 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 the kickback in the stands that you talk about. You've now got Her Game too, which which stood for or stands for women being able to watch football, you know, in safety and comfort without being sexually uh, abused and, and, and threatened or whatever it might be. Um, and and we've seen this season, you know, a Chelsea player who was at Lone Charlton, Conor Gallagher, just because he's a good-looking lad with blonde hair, uh, has been getting homophobic abuse. And it's 
been clamped down on pretty hard uh, over recent weeks. So I think that'll change. Now, you, t- you, you talked about racism. I just touched on uh, uh, Kick It Out. The 80s were a dark time um, for racism, for hooliganism generally. Um, I'm afraid to say, from your perspective, Chelsea were right at the centre of that, that the National Front made it a real recruiting ground. And and despite the, the I, I guess, a threat to your popularity with the fans who, who worshipped you every week, you stood up and you stood up a, a, against them. And I think there's a very powerful story in the book about player I remember, Paul Canaville, and, uh, and the abuse that he got. Can you share a bit more about that story for people who haven't read the book and, and what went through your mind when you decided to make a stand? Did you take any time to weigh up the pros and cons and would you have done anything differently in hindsight? Uh, no, I didn't take any time. He was being, like a lot of black players, most black players at the time, he was being racially abused. Um, but in this particular game, just not long after that time for Chelsea, uh, he was being racially abused by his own fans at Crystal Palace on this occasion. And I just, just lost it, man. <laughs> and we had won one now. I had to put the winning goal. And at the time, we took 1984. Uh, I just refused to talk to the press afterwards about anything, about my goal, about winning the game, about the points. You know, not interested. I'm only get one topic I'm talking to you about, and this is it. And to the discuss that I was with inverted commas, Chelsea fans, because I didn't think they were representative of the vast majority. And, you know, I, I, I said my piece, the, the papers were good enough. They were confused by it because it wasn't common. In fact, I hadn't read it anywhere before, but anyone actually standing up and saying that. Uh, but I come from a background where, you know, I was an anti-apartheid campaigner in Glasgow. I'd been a student, so I'm, and I'm someone who's been moved from that, that life, that outlook into this other one. I'm very much an outsider within this uh, football world. But I bring my values, my thoughts, and my methods to it. Um, so they, they, they did. They, they were good enough to write about it. And they were, they, a lot of them were quite confused, but they didn't think it was a, a thing. because. Just there was casual racism around, you know, there was in the 70s and the early 80s. Um, but what was in Canada's was devastating. I talked to Canada's quite a lot about this. Still, we, we, meet, we meet up when I'm down at Chelsea. Um, and I, the best thing about it is next game, playing against Shrewsbury, because we hadn't, we were going to just about to get uh, promoted to the top division. And I'd made sure that I walked out for the next game. With Canners and Kerry Dixon, who was a big star at Blonde St. Paul, so that we were sure we were behind Paul, hoping that he wouldn't get it again. And as I walked out, the entire place sang Paul Carnival's name before ours. And I'm thinking, wow, this can work. <laughs> this actually happens. And what it was was simple as what I'd suspected. The silent majority, the good Chelsea fans, the vast majority who were, weren't doing that. And, even, and, and yes, they were there. There was, there was a minority. It was a, a sizable minority. But that wasn't... I'd met too many Chelsea fans to know. And it was so easy to stand outside and go, oh, they're all the same. I remember Mrs. Thatcher at the time saying, basically treating all football fans as a bunch of thugs. No, they weren't. <laughs> I was a football fan as a kid. All my mates were. They weren't all thugs. You had a bunch of people who I felt weren't football fans basically used football as their vehicle to get a political thing across and we're having a bit of a, a, a ruck in the middle of it all. 
most of those people who were in those, you know, intercity films and all the rest of it, they go and travel, have a fight in the back. They wouldn't even watch the game. That's not football fans. That's a group of people who are using football, but as a societal problem. And I, I remember I had a conversation with Michael Patillo just a few years ago. I was explaining this to him. And considering he was in the cabinet at the time, he said, we never knew. I said, well, I know he shouldn't. He said, listen, there was some, well, probably only me, but there was a few of us trying to explain this to you. But the football fans were trying to explain it too, but nobody was listening. Um, so that time, certainly I was, I was fuming what happened with Canis. And it, it got uglier after that football. Um, and that's another part in the book as well. But it was something that I would never stop doing because um, I couldn't stop doing it. We needed to educate, not just football fans, but society in general. I mean, I'm, you talk to me just now, and I'm, I'm not proud of it. I think it's quite funny because I'm a doctor twice over. And it's, I've got these, and of course it's only an honorary doctor, right? But they're not for playing football. They're not for media work. They're not for fame. They're purely for the work that I've done in the initial setting up of the anti-racism campaign in football. And when you look at it now, considering they didn't exist, and you'd mentioned kick it out and show racism, the red card, etc. It wasn't anything there. It was nothing. Uh, I remember starting the Merseyside against racism when I went to Ever to help start that. But it was a PFA. And Gordon Taylor got in touch with me and I was saying, why have you not started this year? Um, and a lot of those people in, in the early days starting this sort of stuff up were, have been forgotten. And a lot, a lot of other people come on and they've seen as the original. And they were probably about eight to ten years later. You know, but in the early days, and it's nice that a number of people have, and certainly with my own, you know, I didn't finish my degree, but they've given me a doctorate, so that's all right. <laughs> and, and that's great. And I think that the fact that you did it at that time in that environment really says a lot. But one of the key points, and it goes back to what you said earlier about the people who are angry on Twitter are 0.01% yeah. or whatever it might be of, of people. I get caught up in as a Cholton fan on the Cholton Twitter and I just think, oh my God, is that what our fans are like? But it's yeah. such a small minority that are moaning at absolutely everything. Um, and, you know, you're talking about the racism there. It, it's a microcosm. I had a former Deputy Chief Superintendent of Derbyshire Constabulary on, on the podcast before Christmas. And he talked about, you know, the football fans in the 80s and so forth. I said, I was one. I used to go home and away every week in the late 80s. And we were treated like criminals. We were kettled before kettling was a word that we were aware of every single week. And, and we were treated appallingly. And he'd never thought about it like that. Um, and so there is this habit, this tendency of looking at people as one mass. And you make the point. Yeah, if, if you address it, the majority can speak up. And that can make a difference, which is great. Let, let's let's move on towards the, the last part of the book. And you talk about your, your move to Everton. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff in terms of the dynamics within the group and the dynamics within the team there. And there's just a couple of things I want to finish off with by just picking up from there. You describe at one point you were playing well, you were scoring goals, but the team weren't doing well. And the manager at the time, I think it was Colin Harvey, who, who you had a lot of time for, he brought you in, there was clearly a lot of respect for. Um, he apologised for dropping you. 
Um, but he had to try something different because nothing was working. And he said, it's not you. It's just, I've got to try something different. Um, and you just stopped him and said, it's no need to apologize. I'll, I'll be on the bench and I'll be there if you want me. And, and, um, and you compare that to how other players often react in the same situation with their agents leaking stuff to the press, particularly nowadays, transfer requests going in, hissy fits of all kinds. How do you find the right balance between your personal needs and those of the team? And, and if, from a leadership perspective, how do you manage people who take uh, setbacks like that personally when it might not be about them? Um, it's, it's not easy because we're all different individuals. We're all different ways of dealing with people. Um, I suppose my attitude is to show an attitude that's healthy, that's healthy for the group. And if you show that, it then engenders a similar attitude. Now, if you look at the very best teams ever, now I mean anywhere, you have a look at the, the rugby union team from New Zealand and you look at the respect they have for the game, the respect they have for each other, the respect they have for the team ethic. You put all that together and it becomes no shock that they may be the best ever rugby team ever. And they work together as a group like that. Now, not everyone's going to get that. But you try and have a look at someone, what Pep Guardiola tries to do with his group. If someone isn't working within an ethic that is, yeah, you have to be individual as well, but within the group and works for the group, they are dumped. They're out. <laughs> it's just, and I would say Sir Ali Ferguson in a very different way used to do exactly the same. I don't care how big you are, if you're not doing the right thing for the group, then you're out. You might be the best player in the world. But the best player in the world could still destroy the group. And that was kind of my attitude of like, show that to people. Now, in the short term, sometimes you have to work with people. You have to work with some people who are not the greatest of personalities, and you have to get the best out of them. So if it's management or your captain or you're just a, a, a work colleague, you find a method to do it in the short term. You don't have to be the best friend, but you find a method to do it in the short term. But it doesn't work in the long term. It will poison the group within the, in the long term. And that was some of the most difficult things, things I found because it came so natural to me to... Because as I say, I'm, I'm not somebody who's desperate to be, I never wanted to be famous, so I'm not striving for that. Um, I feel as long as I've got enough money to get by, so I'm not striving to get every extra penny. Um, and maybe that's why, maybe I would have been twice the player I was. Had I been that, I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> I'm still happy. Like, and I got a good enough, I got a good career and I enjoyed that career. Um, I suspected it. It's quite the reverse. I suspect I maximise my potential by doing it my way. But I could, I could understand. But I couldn't understand why they couldn't see the depth of problems they created by their negative influences. So every time I was in a team, yes, I'm an individualist, but I'm also a team player, probably before that. But there's always going to be questions within that. But you will always be a team player. You will have to give up yourself and what's good for you sometimes. And I knew that. And every player on a team should know that. Unless you're a centre forward, of course. Different breed, mate. Different breed. <laughs> but, by the way, and I'm not sure how much humour than that. <laughs> so, I, I felt quite comfortable with that. So, a manager came up to me. I said the same to Sir Ali Ferguson when I was Scotland and he didn't take me to the 1986 World Cup. And he phoned up and he was expecting 
volley of abuse back for me. And I said, no, come on, go for it, go Scotland. I'll be there if you need me. Um, and if I have to put myself in the place of management, whatever, and again, it doesn't matter the business. If I've got a worker who I can't use just now, and I'm not sure, and I have to tell him that, and he said, by the way, I'm with you, and you need me, I'm right behind you, and I'll do whatever I can for you. What effect is that going to have on that manager next time he's thinking about who to choose? And when he would, would he rather have 11 people like that or 11 people that are self-indulgent, self-centered, please give me the respect, <laughs> snowflakes? You know the one he wants to work for you. He wants that person who's part of the group. So it made perfect sense to me. And I think people do get lost in the moment sometimes. Being having the ability to take a step back, look at from above, and see the bigger picture. It's without. I'm not wise. I'm not super intelligent, but I know I've got that ability now and again to do that. And all that. That's all that is. Step back and see what's the bigger picture. There's another similar one like that that happens. I'm not going too long about it. when I was leaving Chelsea. I was basically hoofed out. They needed the money, and they were kicking me out. But the Chelsea fans thought I was scampering away to go to a bigger club when they were in trouble. So I could have gone and said that in the papers. And I could have hammered the club. And I thought, no, why would I do that? Why abuse and make those Chelsea fans feel terrible about their club or me or their friends or winding them up? Why don't I just take a little bit of stick for a little while, move on? And then as time goes on, I'll explain to them, you know, why should I turn them against their organization in the short term. Um, and I just always see the bigger picture and the wider picture. And also, hopefully, not the same self-indulgent picture. <laughs> and that's maybe the problem with footballs and maybe other people's in those situations. Because the personality traits are seen as good to be singular, individual, self-indulgent, self-actualizing, not actualizing, that's a different thing, you know, propelling yourself all the time. They forget that it wasn't just them, they themselves there. Um, and you need to find a balance. My balance was maybe slightly different from others. You talked about uh, Sir Alex Ferguson not taking you to the World Cup. Was it Sir Alex who said, if anyone drops out, you're the next on the plane yeah. and, and yeah. actually said it to three or four different players? He did. I know he said, well, I, I, I found out the next morning he said it to David Speedy because he was in training, uh, which was hilarious. And then I found out recently. He said it down the coast as well. <laughs> <laughs> but, and who was it who did go out in the end? Uh, Steve Archibald, none of us. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and it was, and I, I took no negativity there. And he listened to Coisty talking about it. Coisty laughs about it as well. Because we understood it's just sometimes it, it, it's a kindness. It was a kindness for us that I like to say that. Just I like Fred since he was then. But it's understanding what the bigger, bigger picture is. and. Certainly, you know, I, I, I get that. I just give people my opinion. I am not giving you what you should think and how you should think. I'm not demanding you agree with me. I made that point very early on. In fact, I make it in the prologue of the book. But this is how I felt. This is how I existed and survived as a complete outsider. I'm a total outsider inside football. And one of the interesting things, maybe this book's different from others, is that well, A, apart from anything else, I wrote it myself. <laughs> so if the writing's bad, it's my fault. Um, the other side of it is 
you've read lots of books about insiders inside football and lots of football people and lots of other people want to know what it's like, you know, but it's still an insider's voice. I'm basically saying I'm one of us and I get in there and I had 20 years inside it and this is what it's like for one of us to stand inside there and look at this because I did feel for almost the entirety of it an outsider. But that doesn't mean you're outside that dislikes it. That means you're kind of slightly voyeuristic. You see it from many different angles from what they have seen in the group, the bubble that they've grown up in. And that, more than anything else, which was what I wanted to share and explain in the book. And so the fact that they could, at one point, had a six foot, two inch white guy and a six foot, one inch black guy start naked, fainting each other in a small bath. And they thought that was normal. And I'm thinking, no, 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 that's not normal. I'm the, I'm, I'm the normal one. You're all weird. Even though they thought I was the weird one and they were all normal. <laughs> I think that's a great note on which to, to, uh, to finish. It is a great book. Uh, I think I said to you when we first started chatting that I, I do read the occasional footballer's biography, but I'm not a big fan. Gary Nelson's uh, Left Foot Forward is it's brilliant, but I, I know Gary and, and it's a superb book. So a couple of others. Most of them just aren't. Uh, but there's somehow, I listened to a lot on Fighting Talk. Uh, I knew that this would have something different in it, and it did. So I'm really delighted you come on the podcast, and I hope that you'll come back when the second installment comes out and we get the, the second half of your career. Well, it was it was been a pleasure talking about it. The, the nice thing is, it feels comfortable because you know that it's a book that football is the skeleton of. It's kind of not really a football book, you know. It's a kind of looking at life kind of book, and um, from a, a, a slightly different angle. And maybe the one thing that the book's done very well, it's, it was received very well, um, you know. But the breakout was the thing that was interesting for me because. You actually don't need a football fan to read it. <laughs> you really don't. It's just like life and, and how it affected me. If you work in any industry at all, there'll be a lot of uh, you know, certainly echoes of your industry too. Definitely. And I think that, you know, some people might look at the Connected Leadership podcast and wonder why I'm interviewing a footballer, but it wouldn't have taken very long into the discussion to work out exactly why. So, Pat, thank you very much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Take care. Thank you. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed that interview. As I said at the beginning, this wasn't a typical footballer interview, just like the accidental footballer was, isn't a typical footballer's book. Um, and certainly from the very beginning, we went in a very different and very um, interesting direction uh, and a very important one as well. And I do hope that we get to uh, to follow up that conversation with Pat. I, I think there's an interesting dichotomy in, the, in Pat's outlook. There is a very individualistic streak within him uh, in the, you know, I'll, I'll do me, you do you. And I think that came through very clearly. You know, he talked about owning who you are. Uh, and, you know, that discussion at the beginning about not being attached to the outcome uh, and, and how he's able to do that. He was able to do it as a professional footballer. He was able to do it in his broadcasting and writing career. Uh, I, I think that individualism individualism really stands out. But at the same time, he's a team player. Uh, and that also comes through as much in the conversation today uh, and in the book as well, um, that he, he'll sacrifice himself for the team. And I think that's a really interesting counterbalance between the two. Uh, 
Um, and, and I hope he comes back on and joins us again. So uh, I trust you enjoyed the podcast. Please do share it. Uh, this is a great one to post onto LinkedIn or Facebook. Share with your Chelsea and Everton and Scotland supporting friends. Tell people, tell the world about the Connected Leadership Podcast and help us uh, to spread the word. And if you enjoyed it, please do go on to uh, ratings and reviews on Spotify or Apple uh, Podcasts or wherever you are. Um, give us five stars if you deserve it. And if you could take a moment to write a couple of lines about why you enjoyed it, um, that all helps as well. I hope you enjoyed that visit back to March of last year. And join us again next week for another dip into the Connected Leadership Podcast Gold Archives. I'll see you then for a happy Christmas. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe. Tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great connected leadership tips.